In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and project. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa Brothers, sisters, and respected viewers, wherever you may be, assalamu alaikum jami'an wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And thank you for joining us once again on these lectures that are coming to an end soon, inshallah. A few more lectures left in our series on the topic of the afterlife. And with this, we will have completed the entire series on aqaid, on our beliefs. The topic for today's discussion is supposed to be um, called al-ihbaq or al-habt and al-takfir which we can translate as nullification and expiation. And we're going to explain what those mean. The topic in itself may seem a little technical, uh, but inshallah we'll, we'll keep it relevant and practical and concrete, while at the same time presenting the, the, the gist, the core of the argument, so that in case any of you are interested in, in pursuing this further, you at least have all the keywords and all the terminology and you can jump into the, the discussion and you know kind of where the, the lay of the land is, as they say. <clears throat> so um, in terms of a recap where we think left things, um, this topic is still a continuation of the, the, the sub-theme that we began, which is trying to understand the relationship between this world and the next. And we're looking at things from different angles. So once we establish that there has to be an afterlife, we establish the rational proofs, we establish the scriptural proofs, we established what that the journey to get there looks like once all of this was done, we said we need to understand what type of relationship exists between this world and the next. What type of relationship exists between what happens in this world and the outcomes? What type of relationship is there between belief, action, and reward and punishment? And what's the relationship between faith and action? What, what role does each of them play? And is it a two-way or a one-way street, as we said? So this was kind of the, the framing. Inshallah, all of this is clear. I'm, I'm planning to go a little bit faster. But if there are any questions about any of this, please ask them. But that's kind of the, the general context that we've covered until now. In the, once we established that, yes, in this world, a human being has to input two things for his afterlife. There is your beliefs, which at the same time will include the intentions that derive out of those beliefs. And then again, after those beliefs, you have your actions. So there's two big ingredients, carry in your heart and the, the deeds and actions that you perform. When we looked at the nature and we analyzed it, the conclusion from all of that was that this is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala 
the first most important thing that you are presenting to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is your faith, is your belief, is your that go with it. That's what you're presenting to Allah. That is your true worth in before Allah. This is what you're worth. This is how you become in the afterlife. You are the sum of those beliefs and the intentions with those beliefs require action. So we explored that entire relationship, inshallah, all of that. But we spent a little bit of time, and this is what we did in the last discussion, so that I'm just building up to it. In the last discussion, we said there might be a misconception, especially in today's culture, especially in today's world, with its emphasis on Notions like uh, being of service, being helpful and causing happiness for others. Said when people look at someone who is religious, especially if they've been following along, a question that we may have ourselves or someone may ask us is what is this insistence that you have on beliefs? What should matter ultimately is the deeds that you put in this world. How much good you put in this world. So our question is, how do you define good? Because our claim is that we've been talking about the good all along. The way they define the good is how much happiness it produces in this world. How much service does it provide to others? How many human beings have you helped? So this should be the ultimate criterion based on which someone is going to be happy or unhappy in the afterlife. So inshallah, this discussion is clear and fresh in your minds too. And so based on what we have said, given that the main priority, the main role is with your faith and your beliefs, your actions are secondary to that. They derive out of those. And this is where we introduced the notion of husn, fi'li and husn, Sometimes you look at how much goodness there is in the act, but we said this is very incomplete. We tend to do that as human beings in day-to-day -day lives because we need to isolate something to look at it on its own. But the truth is in everyday life, this doesn't exist. Every act has an actor behind it. There's an agent. So for me to assess how good an act is, I have to see what was the intention with which it was done? Not just how much external output there is, which may be defined, which be looked at as, you know, how much service, how much happiness, so on and so forth. So inshallah, this is clear. This is good and fresh in your mind. We're going to now go to another topic, but all of this needs to be fresh in your minds, present in your minds, because we're just building up on this. The topic for today is yet another question that has to do with this relationship now specifically between good deeds and bad deeds, good faith and bad faith. In what sense? We know that generally speaking, for the crushing majority of human beings, there is really not that many people who only have bad deeds or who only have good deeds. And this can be said both about faith 
and it can be said about actions. No one has pure, correct faith, good beliefs and intentions, nor does anyone have pure, evil, wicked, bad faith and uh, intentions and beliefs. There's always a mix. The question that we want to ask is what's the effect of each one of these on the other? How does good action affect bad action? Or how does bad action affect good action? Or when we look at beliefs, how does good faith affect bad faith? Or lack of faith? Or rejection of faith? Do they have an impact on each other or not? And we're going to give some examples, inshallah, to clarify this, to make this clear, what we're talking about. But this is just so that we situate the, the topic and we understand how it fits into what we've been presenting. We said we're trying to understand the relationship between this world and the next, and then the ingredients that we put in and how they manifest themselves in the afterlife and how they affect each other in this world and the next world, these ingredients. So, of course, one of these ingredients is your action and your faith. And on one side, when they're good, how does it affect when they're bad? Or the opposite, when they're bad, how does it affect when they're good? And the faith, the same way. If it's good faith, how does it affect bad faith? Bad iman, lack of iman, i.e. kufr. So, one way to look at this is to say, for instance, every action that you perform is going to have an outcome. So you perform a good action, you have a good outcome. You perform a bad action, you have a bad outcome. And that's it. And I think until now, this is what we've been trying to present. So that every good deed, every good act of internal of your heart or of your body is going to translate into a good result, good outcome, happiness in the afterlife and the opposite. That's what we've said until now. Let's ask the next question. Let's say someone does a good act, which should amount to a reward, a good outcome. That good act is followed by a bad act, by a sin, by a misdeed. The, the sin and the misdeed on its own should amount to punishment, unhappiness, and the afterlife. But does it have an effect on the good act? Does the reward of the good act remain as is if it is followed by a bad act? Are these two different streams so that you will be punished for every bad act and you will be rewarded for every good act independently? Or do these affect each other? This discussion of how they affect each other, this is the topic that we want to talk about today, which is, is there something called al-habt or ihbat, which is when you have done something good and then the reward of that good is nullified, is canceled out. And the opposite, you have done something bad there's a negative outcome, a sin that should result in a punishment, but then that damage, 
the negative effects of that sin are removed. So you're forgiven or what we're referring to as you're expiated. That's the word we're, we're going to be using. It could be absolved. It could be atoned. It could be forgiven. I'll explain very quickly later why I chose this word, but it could be any of those. But that's the gist of the discussion. And this has practical repercussions on our faith. Based on everything that we have said, we need to have an answer to this. Because it may cause someone to completely be neglectful of their sins or become completely hopeless that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will ever forgive them and allow them to enter into heaven if they don't feel like there is a way out of all the sins that they have. So we need an answer to this question. How does this work? So one way is to say basically, when you have good faith, when you have the right iman, or when you have the proper actions, deeds, good deeds, these are going to be fixed, unchangeable. That's it. This is your permanent record. And everything that is part of your permanent record amounts to a specific reward or punishment that goes with it. The other way to view it is to say no. You can't look at any act or any belief on its own. You always have to see what was it followed by. Depending on what was following it, then you can say whether that good deed remains as is or whether that sin remains as is or does it change into whatever was followed, whatever followed it. So inshallah, this is just stating a problem. I'm trying to explain, clarify the problem and we're going to get into the discussion. But inshallah, the problem itself is clear. And this, this issue caused a lot of discussion and a, a lot of ink and a lot of books and volumes were written about this. Depending on which school of thought you belong to, different, even within the schools, there were different opinions throughout Islamic history, from the beginning of Islamic history. And it kind of continues until today. The topic is not as, as hotly debated now. So another way to look at this is to ask the question, if there are harms, if there are sins that cause you harm, damage, the afterlife, we're talking theology here. Is there a way to restore? Is there a way to forgive, efface, erase those negative impacts of sins or not? And the opposite. Is there a risk of losing the rewards or not? And so this is the topic that is referred to as habt and takfir. So first things first, what do we mean by these terms themselves? The meaning of the terms. Habt. Let's start with habt and then takfir. When you say something, ihbab uh, or hababa or all of the derivatives of the word, it basically means to render something void, null, without effect, fruitless, without any outcome, without any product. And if there was one, you're removing the effect of the product. So that's the habt. What about takfir? Of course, let's start by saying, here we're not talking about takfir as in the sense of calling someone a disbeliever. Okay, that's a completely different topic. 
Here, forget all of that discussion. The only common between those two is the letters that create that word. And I'll explain in a second why. The root of takfir is kafara. In Arabic, kafara means to conceal. That's the root, the origin of the term. And it can be used in different ways. The, a farmer, the Holy Quran refers to farmers as kuffar. Yu'jibul kuffara in one of the verses. Not those who are disbelievers. It uses an analogy, the metaphor about life. Life is, and we've talked about this again and again. Imagine that you have a lush garden that pleases the farmers, that pleases the gardeners. Al-kuffar. Why? Because the kuffar, in this sense, the farmers or the gardeners, they conceal the seeds with earth. That's the origin of the term. But then it was used theologically to say someone who conceals the truth or who buries the truth, who doesn't want to see the truth for what it is. That's the origin of the term. So when we say takfir here, we're using it in a positive sense, not the negative sense. We've said this a few times. We've said the Holy Quran uses kuffar and kafir and takfir in different ways. One of them has to do, for instance, with thankfulness. Just being ungrateful is kufr. And sometimes in our terminology, we says kufran and ni'mah, for instance. This is being ungrateful. This is not disbelieving in God. So in all of these senses, the common thread is that there is an act of concealing. You have a bounty, you have something you should be grateful for, a blessing that you got, but you conceal it. You pretend it was not there. You're neglectful of it. With truth, disbelief, the one that we refer to as kufr, the one we use the most, is you're concealing the truth. This is how the term is used. You see the difference between, that's why the, you, you never get a perfect match when you try to translate. How do you reproduce this sense in another language? In any case. So what do we mean here when we say there is takfir? When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses the term in this way in the Quran, what does it mean? It means that you've done something and it has a negative effect. There is a shame, there is a punishment, there is damage that is the outcome of this act. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala conceals it by forgiving you. Except that when he forgives, it's as though it never happened. In the takfir, and the whole Quran uses that, the same sense that we use, for instance, kafara. Let's say someone had some days of Shahar Ramadan that they had to fast, they did not fast. They pay a kafara. They perform a kafara. They replace that with something else to conceal it. So you atone. I don't want to use the term atone because it could be in that sense. But in Christianity, it's used very heavily with the belief around how Isa السلام, sacrificed himself for the sins of the world. So there's an atonement. So if you believe in that, there's, so the term is loaded. So I don't want to use that term. If you use the other term, which is absolve, it's just forgiving. But when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgives, there is nothing left. It's as though there is no more damage left. So there is a difference between the tawbah that you receive, the maghfara that you receive, and the kafara, the takfir, 
The takfir clearly means that there is something, but it's, it's damage, its negative effects are nullified. They're no longer an effect. So there's a little nuance, so I wanted to keep it. So I'm using the term expiate. So the negative damage, negative effects of the sin, the punishment, the unhappiness that should result out of the sin are no longer an effect. So when we say ihbat, it means that you've done something good, but the good effects of your good deed are nullified. And when we use takfir, we mean Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is nullifying the negative effects of your act. Okay, so that's the linguistic terminology and then how it's used in theology. Okay, so with this, now we're equipped to go through the discussion a lot quicker now. So as we said, there's a very long history for this whole discussion in Islam. And we're not going to go through who said what and all of that. The big schools of thought is that, as we said, there are people who say there is definitely ihbat or haqq and there is takfir. In what sense? In the sense that if you do good and it, it is followed by bad, then the bad cancels out everything. And the opposite. If you do bad and you do good, the good cancels out everything. Then within that, there's all sorts of different permutations. So some have said, no, no, it is only the greater sins. So if you've done good your whole life, but then you commit a greater, one of the greater sins, then you've just nullified everything. For instance, there is a belief, that's one possibility, that someone who is a disbeliever, who becomes a believer at the level of faith, we're not talking about action now, just faith, at the level of faith, because you've become a believer, then all of the sinning or unhappiness or negative effects of your disbelief during that entire time has been canceled. And the opposite. Someone who was good, who had the correct belief system, who performed everything with the intention that it was for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and at some point they lose faith. They no longer believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Their acts no longer have the intention that this is for God. They've become a disbeliever. In that case, everything that was done before loses its good positive effects as acts deriving from belief. These are all permutations of this. So we're going to see in a second which one is correct from all of this. So the first thing that we need to do, and unfortunately this is not done in this way in you know, most works that address this, because we need to make this easier for us to understand and we don't have time to go through all the details. Let's start by distinguishing between belief and acts, belief and deeds. There is a discussion about habt and takfir, about belief, and there's a discussion about habt and takfir, about your deeds, your acts. So let's start with beliefs because it's very simple. Someone who is a non-believer, someone who does not believe in God, prophethood, afterlife, so on and so forth. And then they believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the example that we just gave. Does this cancel out? Does this render void all of their, at the level of belief, all of the negative 
impacts, negative effects of their disbelief? Yes, it does. For this point, this is a matter of consensus among all Muslims. There's no disagreement here. Throughout Islamic history, from the beginning of Islam until today, everybody believes that if you were a non-believer, you were a kafir, and you became a mu'min, then everything, all of the sins or sayyat associated with your kufr are now expiated. They have been forgiven. We're not talking about, let's say, physical damage or monetary damage, financial damage that you've done to someone. That's a different discussion. We're not talking about the rights between people. We're not talking about justice in this world. We're talking at the level of belief. When you're performing acts with a lack of belief or a disbelief in God, and then you become a believer, during that entire time, you are in a state of sinning at the theological level, at the belief level. All of this is canceled out to the moment you become a believer. But the opposite is also true. Someone who has the correct belief system, and then they become a disbeliever, they have just nullified their entire belief. They have lost, if you leave this world, you now depart from this world in a state of having rejected the faith that you had, then you leave this world in that state and everything that happened before in terms of belief has been lost now. We're not talking about the action. We're not talking about sins now. We're talking about your belief, what you truly carry in your heart. Is there a God? Is there a revelation? Is there a prophet? Is there an afterlife? That's what we're talking about. Okay? So these two components of ihbab and takfir, as they relate to faith, they are a matter of consensus. There's no disagreement about it. So we can skip to the action a little bit faster. And I don't think we need to explain why, because if you understood the discussion that we had about the role of faith and the relationship between faith and act actions or deeds, then this should have become a logical outcome of all of that. Okay, so if it's not understood, we can come back, come back to it. But I think for now, we've covered it properly. And if you look at some verses of the Quran, you get this very clearly. In one verse, for instance, the Surah Al-Tahabun, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَمَن يُؤْمِن بِاللَّهِ وَيَعْمَلْ صَالِحًا يُكَفِّرْ عَنْهُ سَيِّئَاتِهِ وَيُدْخِلْهُ جَنَّاتٍ تَجْرِي مِنْ تَحْتِيَ الْأَنَارِ And whoever believes in Allah and does good, he will expiate their evil deeds. Very clearly. This is 64.9. On the opposite side. So this is someone who enters into belief. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, I'll expiate. I'll do takfir. I'll remove all the negative effects of their kufr. And the opposite side. In Surah Al-Baqarah 2.17, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَمَنْ يَرْتَدِدْ مِنْكُمْ عَنْ دِينِهِ And whosoever, or if any of you, turn back from their faith, there's an irtidad here. You're rejecting the faith that you are carrying. And whoever amongst you, or if any of you, turn back on their faith and die in disbelief. So now they die, they are leaving this world in a state of disbelief. Their deeds will bear no fruit in this life. 
and in the hereafter, they will be companions of the fire and will abide therein. So if someone says, yeah, but what about all the good that they did? Yeah, but they made it null. They did not keep it. They pressed the delete button and they lost everything. Why? Because it's at the level of faith. And that's why we've been insisting on the importance of faith until now. Deeds, there's always a way around. So long as you're carrying the right faith. So long as your attachment is to God. You have a relationship with God. You recognize his existence. You recognize that he's the creator. He's the Lord. And that there are messengers and prophets. And there's an afterlife. So long as those components are there, then the rest is all a derivative of this. There's a way, a way around it. But if those components are lacking, that's where you need to be focusing on. That's why we began our entire series of talking about religion with this, with establishing the core foundation. We can't start talking about actions. We can't start talking about things that are secondary if the faith is not there. If there's an issue with belief in God, if there's an issue with belief in prophethood, if there's an issue with belief in the afterlife, there's no point in talking about actions and deeds. Those things have to be secured and in place. Now, let's turn to actions. When we come to actions and how takfir and ihbab apply to them, this is where you fall into the big disagreements between the different schools of thought. One way to look at it, and of course, this doesn't cover all of the different permutations. There's quite a few different opinions. But just so that you understand the gist of the argument, and as I said, it's easier for you after, if you want to look into this further. One way to look at this is to view it as an example that I've used in the past. View it as though it's a bank account. Imagine someone has one bank account. Every act that you perform, because now we're only talking about actions. So everything we're going to be saying now applies to someone who has the correct belief system. We're no longer talking about that other person who doesn't have the correct belief system. We said there's no point in talking about deeds for those people. Someone who has the correct belief system, now we want to look at the effects of they do good and then it's followed by bad. Or they do bad and then it's followed by good. That's what we're looking at. Which obviously I think for all of us, we see that it applies to us. This is directly relevant to us. Inshallah, we all carry the correct belief system and we all do good and we all do bad. Now we want to understand how those two relate to each other. Someone has one bank account. That bank account, you can only do two things in it. When you do good, it's a plus. You're depositing. When you do bad, it's like you're withdrawing. So when you go in the afterlife, there's different theories, but all of them amount to this theory, this bottom line. You had one bank account. What you get in the afterlife is the bottom line. We see how much plus you had how much minus you had, and whatever the outcome is, that's what you get. So in that sense, was there ihbat and takfir or not? Of course there is. Because you may do good, but every time there's a minus that comes, it's removing from the good. You had 
$10 and then you withdrew $10, you're now at zero. You had $10 and you withdrew $20, you're now at minus 10. Equals punishment, equals unhappiness. How much unhappiness? Minus 10. Here there are different permutations too. So some say, of course, not all sins are equivalent. Greater sins cause a lot more harm than others. Or this applies much more to greater sins than smaller sins. These are all the different permutations that you get if you go through all the theories. But that's the gist of it. The big other theory, the other big theory, is that you have two bank accounts. One of them is only for depositing, and one of them is only for withdrawing. And they're independent. Or put another way, one of them is only for depositing and the other is for depositing, but you're depositing two different things. In one of them, whatever you deposit equals reward in the afterlife. The other one, whatever you're depositing, your sins, your misdeeds, equals punishment in the afterlife. So however much you put in good deeds, that's how much good you will get in the afterlife. And however much bad deeds you put in, that's how much punishment also awaits you in the afterlife. So both will happen, but to different degrees, depending on what you put in into each. Generally speaking, these if you understand this distinction, then you understand the gist of the, the disagreement between the different theories and the different scholars in Islam when it comes to this. So you have on one side, you have Al-Mu'tazila, and on the other side, you have Shia and Al-Ashara. Shia and Al-Ashara, generally speaking, they say, I shouldn't just give the punchline now, but just so that you don't get too lost and I know it's late. Generally speaking, the Shia and the Ashara say, generally speaking, there is no Ihbab and Takfiyah. So we have two different bank accounts. The Mu'tazila say, no, it's one bank account. Whatever the bottom line is, that's how it works. Okay? So now we're going to go into a little bit of the discussion around it. What are the arguments and why do we believe what we believe? And is it a blanket statement like some say, or are there details to this? Okay? So generally speaking, Let's begin with, as we said, we're talking about two things here. We cannot lump together, as many have done, we can't lump together ihbat, nullification, and takfir, uh, expiation together. We have to look at them separately. Why? When you look at nullification, you're saying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is nullifying, is rendering void the positive effects the rewards of your good deeds, right? If that is the case, this, at least this contradicts a few things, but at least two big ones for our purposes. It contradicts divine justice and it contradicts the divine promise. The divine justice that says Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, if he is just, and I think we discussed at length just, and he can only be just, then it is only just of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to reward a human being for a good deed that they have performed. Bottom line, end of story. 
if that is a principle, then to maintain that principle, you cannot just accept habt. You cannot just accept that the good effects of the good actions that you have done are just going to be nullified. So the blanket statement that if you do good and then you do bad, the bad will cancel out the good, that blanket statement can't be accepted because of this. That's one reason. The second reason, so the first reason we can call it, as I have tried to do from the beginning to, to hammer this in your minds, first reason, that's rational. Second, scripture. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has promised that he will reward every good deed again and again. You do good, you get good. So it goes against a divine promise. So the second one can be considered scriptural. The first one is rational. The second one is scriptural. For these two reasons, the blanket statement that there is nullification of good deeds cannot be accepted. That's a general argument to keep in mind. Is there a problem with this thinking or not? Yes, there's one big problem with this. If you go to the Holy Quran, you find quite a few mentions of ihbat. Let's put takfir aside. We said we're going to talk about it. It's much simpler, takfir. Ihbat is, is where all the issues are. When you go to the Holy Quran, you see that the Holy Quran talks a lot about people who have their good deeds subjected to habt, to ihbat, to nullification, to voiding of their good rewards. So what do we do with that? Of course, we can add the narrations, but let's focus on the Holy Quran. So as we said, the, the Shia now specifically, because we don't have time to go through all the, the, discussion, the distinctions here. Generally speaking, the Shia believe that there is no such thing as a blanket nullification. Those who believe in nullification, they view it like we described. Good deeds equal plus, bad deeds equal minus. It's one bank account, and there's a, a, a subtotal. It's cumulative. You look at everything together. This does not exist. So then what do we do with verses of the Holy Quran that talk about ihbat? And of course, we'll get to takfir. What do we do with those? The, there's a few answers, but the strongest answer and the clearest answer and the others build on it is that the Shia scholars and based on the narrations and based on their understanding of the verses of the Quran, they say that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when he says that he will reward, he will give you a reward for certain acts, that reward is conditional. For you to receive the reward, you have to meet certain criteria. You have to meet certain conditions. So for act A, let's say for act A, for deed A that you're going to do, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has promised you reward X. But reward X only if you meet conditions 1, 2, 3. If you fail to meet conditions 1, 2, 3, then you will not get the reward X. 
which is different from saying that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave you the reward and then he removed it. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said from the beginning that to get the reward X, you have to meet conditions one, two, three. Don't expect reward X if those conditions are not met. So generally speaking, if you go to the Shia scholars, they will tell you that for, re, for action A, for deed A, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is listing, is giving you a series of conditions that have to be met. If you don't meet those conditions, you do not get that reward. Okay, so generally speaking, that's the gist of the argument. Why is this good? As we said, it may be theoretical, but why is this good in a, at a practical level, in a practical sense? If you believe truly in ihbat, you are always left fully exposed to leaving this world with nothing. Which means, and even if that's not what we're focusing on, or let's say you are someone who has, you know that you have done a lot of sins. So you sit and count yourself, how many sins do I have? How bad have I really been? And if you want to do this equation in this way, you want to count your pluses and your minuses, and you see that you really don't have that many pluses and you have a whole lot of minuses and it does not even compare, then you will lose hope. And this is in fact what happens to a lot of people. And it's a normal human behavior. In this life, we all do this. At some point, you know, you go so far, so deep into something, whatever it may be, that you say, that's it, I'm past the point of no return. So whatever happens, happens now, because who cares? I've gone too far, there's no way back. It's too much work for me to try to come back. If you believe in Ihbat, then you will, if you happen to be one of those people, and you see how much bad you've done, how many misdeeds you have, how many sins you have, you may fall in this category of people who lose hope. You despair. You say, there is no point for me to try to make up. How much good do I have to do to make up for all the bad that I've done? If you believe, however, that no, no, there is a line or a lane for the good and a lane for the bad, and that there is a way for each to cancel out the other, then the door is always left open. There is always a possibility because both expiation and we haven't talked about expiation. Nullification is there, but expiation too. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala may forgive, remove all the bad from you, from your record. And we haven't said why it's, a, it's not a big issue. So this is the the discussion that has to do with the nullification. That there are different points of view. When we come to the Shia scholars, they believe that there is no blanket ihbat uh, in the absolute sense in which every time you do a, deed, a misdeed, a sin, it just cancels out all the good. That's not what they believe. But they do believe that for a lot of good deeds that you perform, 
they are conditional. There are conditions for you to receive the reward associated with those deeds. If you do not meet those conditions, you don't get that reward. Okay? And we said the practical application of this in our daily lives is that this means, inshallah, no one loses hope. You never lose hope. Now let's look at takfir. Just like the Shia don't believe that there is absolute nullification, just unrestricted nullification. As soon as you do bad, it cancels out all the good. Or if it's one greater sin, it cancels out all the good that you had. As some schools of, of Muslims believed, the same thing applies to takfir. Takfir, as we said, is you have done bad and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgives, removes the negative effects, the damage in the afterlife of the bad that you have done. That's takfir. The Shia also don't believe that there is takfir in the sense that you have been bad or you have done a lot of bad and now you do a lot of good and it just cancels out the bad automatically. No, no, it's not as simple as that. The same thing applies again. There are conditions that have to be met. Once again here, why is this, without going into the theory of it, it's fun and interesting for the more nerdy ones among you to know these technicalities, but why is this important? Why is this relevant and practical for our daily lives? Because it means just like in the first case, you never fall into hopelessness. You never give up hope because you know there's always a way out. In this case, you never become neglectful or underestimate the effect of the sin. You never know if the effect of the sin has actually been removed. The effect of the sin, the punishment related to the sin may always be there. There is no guarantee that the entire effect of the sin has been removed. There is no guarantee that the takfir has actually taken place. It's not automatic. Just like ihbab is not automatic, the takfir is also not automatic. Okay, so this is the bottom line practical outcome from these two, why we talked about them and what it means for our lives. So here, of course, we can add, and I'll try to go a little bit faster here. A lot of the topic itself is we've covered it, inshallah. All that's left is just go through and going through some verses of the Holy Quran to see how this is explained in the Holy Quran and just establishing that this is actually Quranic. We're not just coming up with stuff from ourselves. The, the points that we can add here, clearly, when you go through the verses of the Quran, and much more clearly, if you go through the narrations, and this is where you really, you know, you stand in awe of the way Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created this world, is that every act has a specific effect in this system. It's like everything is regulated by laws, very meticulous rigorous laws that if you do certain things and they meet certain conditions, then certain outcomes result out of it. And not everything affects everything in some you know, random uh, way, just openly and everything just 
affecting everything in the same way. This is where a lot of our scholars, for instance, if you go into the more technical discussions around this, they say the reason why, for instance, you may perform a certain act, two acts, both of them are good acts, but they don't have the same effect when it comes to this discussion. If you look at all of your deeds from this angle of the how much plus or minus how much reward or punishment is being affected by this cumulatively? Two things, they look like they're the same. They're, and if you're only looking at the pluses, then you may look at something like, for instance, someone giving charity and someone asking Allah for repentance. Both of these should just be a plus. If the repentance is accepted, the outcome of the repentance is not only that you get reward for having asked repentance, there's an effect that happens as a result and your sins are removed, right? That's the effect of repentance. So repentance is a good act. Prayer is a good act. Fasting is a good act. Charity is a good act and so on and so forth. Each of them has a different effect. They don't all just equal a one plus. Each one of these is a different type of plus. They're not all the same. And how, this is where I said, if you go into the more technical discussion and where it gets, where, where I say, where I find that you stand in awe of how Allah subhanahu wa has created this world, they say this is because each one of these acts has a different effect on your soul. So when you pray, it causes something different in your soul than when you fast, than when you recite Quran, than when you ask repentance. Which means that when you go in the afterlife, it will manifest itself differently. Because it's affecting your soul differently. And what you're doing in this world is building your soul your identity, who you truly are spiritually, because that's what you will be in the afterlife. You just don't get to see it here. But it's affecting you. The, these things are all piling up and accumulating and shaping and molding your soul. But each one of them has a different effect. And that's why the effect of repentance is different from the effect of prayer. And it's different from the effect of reciting the Quran, Dif different from the effect of helping others. Each one of these, they are all good, but each one of these has a, is developing a different muscle, is working on a different dimension of your soul. Okay? So this is the more, I think, you know, spiritual, psycho-spiritual dimension of this that I think is interesting to think about, and inshallah, it does have some ramifications that some of our scholars say, you know, don't limit yourself to one type of good. There are people who kind of maintain some good acts, but they completely neglect others. There are people who pray a lot, and good for them. Or people who recite the Holy Quran a lot, but they don't really do anything else. They don't really give charity. They don't really go out of their way to help others. They're not ready to sacrifice anything, so on and so forth. And they say it's like when you go in the afterlife, Imagine the difference between someone who goes to an amazing buffet 
But one person is only offered one type of food because that's all you work for. As good as it is, there is 10,000 other types of food, but you were not interested in them. You only worked for one. And so you get that type of reward. And of course, this is a simplistic way of looking at it, but I think it, it still hits home that each one of these has a different effect. Why would you neglect some of them? For those of you who work out, you know the importance of balancing your, your body. You don't only work, or those who play sports, you have to play on your whole game. You don't only focus on one, and then you have a, a clear weakness on another. If you understand religion as a spiritual growth, as constantly developing your soul, then you have to understand that the whole system of religion is meant to build up your entire soul. So if you just focus on one side and you leave others, you're creating weaknesses. And those weaknesses can result in, in problems. And, you know, as a side note, this is where ilm al-akhlaq becomes very important. Ilm al-akhlaq is the study of your soul. What is your soul made up of? What are the big components of your soul? And of course, this is kind of, as we said, you take something very complex, or in fact, extremely simple, that it's too complex to understand for us because it's too simple. We need to break it up into parts or dimensions or angles so that we can focus on it and do something for each one of these dimensions that we find. So this is what Ilm al-Akhlaq does. This is the importance of Ilm al-Akhlaq. Now you work on your soul from all the angles. A really good teacher of Akhlaq will be someone who will not just focus on one side. They will be able to look at your whole soul and tell you, you have strengths here. I don't need to work that. You already have this. You're good. Here is where your weakness is. We need to work on this. You need to work on your ego. You need to work on being more charitable. You need to work on you know, learning how to sacrifice and so on and so forth. Because all of these have different effects on, on the soul. The last point here is now the details of all of this, they cannot be reached by reason. We gave a framework. We gave an, a rationalistic explanation to all of this. But how, you know, when we said for deed A, you have to, in order to get reward X, you have to meet criteria one, two, three. Well, none of this you can reach just with pure reason. You have to rely entirely, and once again, a reminder of the shortcomings of human reason, you have no way of knowing this. You have to re rely entirely on scripture. Either the Holy Quran or the narrations will explain this to you. So very quickly now, inshallah, we can cover this quickly. Examples in the Holy Quran. And I'm going to try to do a couple of things here because these are supposed to be more than one lecture that I'm sticking together so that we... We try to move faster. We're trying to show on the one side, I'm trying to show that this reality of ihbab and takfir isn't the Holy Quran. But I'm also going to give you examples or categories of ihbab and takfir. To see the last point that we made, which is not everything affects everything in the same way. In the Holy Quran, we have categories, we have buckets of actions that amount to certain outcomes. Not every bad act results in this. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us a list. Does it mean this is comprehensive? Of course not. 
We don't know. We know what we have been given. And there might be good reasons why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't give us the full list and all the conditions and all the criteria. So that we don't rely overly on our intellect and try to make it into a mathematical equation. Because it's not. This is a spiritual reality that is way beyond what this world can handle in terms of precision. That's why this is all left to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to decide. Okay, so here are some of the big buckets. So I'm not going to comment too much on these verses. And because the, it's getting late, I won't even recite them in, in Arabic. Maybe just the first one because I didn't even write it in English. So those who have disbelieved or who have rejected in our signs, rejected our signs, and the encounter of the hereafter or the afterlife. Their deeds have been nullified. They have become not. They've become nothing. Why? So this is the first category. There is disbelief. This is why, as we said from the beginning, if the belief is not there, there is no point in talking about anything else. That's what we've been repeating again and again. Okay, so we're not going to spend too much more time on this, but keep in mind there are verses of the Quran that clearly say, if you don't believe in God, this is the amount, the, the outcome, that all good is going to be nullified. So in what sense is it nullified? In the sense that you did not meet the criteria. You did not meet the condition. The good that you did did not meet the condition, which is believe in God, believe in the guidance that he sent you, believe in the afterlife. If this is missing, it's nullified. Because in appearance, it looks like you did something good and there should be a reward. Okay? So the Holy Quran says for all of these, if there is a lack of belief, there's a lack of belief in the afterlife. So I specifically chose this one this verse in Surah Al-A'raf because it says that because we began this series by trying to show the importance of understanding the afterlife. If someone does not understand, does not believe that there is an afterlife, does not believe in this type of afterlife, then there is an issue with their belief. Polytheism. So you believe that it's not, not everything is in God's hands. There are other divinities, deities, gods. So, and it has surely been revealed unto you and unto those before you that if you ascribe partners to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, your work will surely come to naught, to nothing. Hypocrisy. The hypocrites. Then it says, the next verse, See, the, the, the topic, the, the term, where it happens, verily God has promised the hypocrites, men and women, and the disbelievers, the fire of hell, they shall be dwellers therein, it shall suffice them, God curses them, and theirs shall be a lasting punishment. It is they whose deeds come to naught in this world and in the hereafter, and it is they who are the losers. In Surah al 68, 69. Renouncing faith. That's the next category. You had faith, and then you let it go. You renounce it. You reject it. You say, I no longer am a believer. You leave the religion. You leave the faith. 
إن الذين ارتدوا على أدبارهم من بعد ما تبين لهم الهدى. This is where it's always a condition in the Holy Quran. Are these people who did not know? That's different. Or is it someone to whom the guidance has been made clear? That's why the Quran says, truly those who turn their backs after guidance has been made clear to them. Satan has seduced them and has lured them with false hopes. That is because they followed that which angered God and were averse to his good pleasure, so he made their deeds come to naught. They had good deeds, they amount to nothing. There are verses, and this one we recited, but you probably didn't notice this component of the verse, so I repeat it. Now you're going to learn it by heart. We've repeated it a few times. Don't render null and void the acts of charity that you do. How, how do you make them null and void? Because you cause harm and injury, or we said preening. You remind the person, المن, you remind them one way or another, directly or indirectly. You throw jabs, you remind the person, I'm the person who helped you. You wouldn't be where you are. You wouldn't have made it without me. You've just rendered null and void the good act that you did. That means you didn't do it for God. And the verse itself says it. You did not do this for God. You don't really believe in the afterlife if you did this. That's how the verse puts it. It says, O you who believe, do not annul your acts of charity through preening and injury, like he who spends his wealth to be seen and believes not in God and the last day. If you did this really because you believe there's a God and there is an afterlife, and you're doing this to help this person because you believe in those things, you would not be able to come back and remind this person and cause them harm. So you are no different from the one who is doing it, even though they don't believe in God or the afterlife, and they're only doing it so that people see them doing it. Okay? Those who desire this world only. So you do everything for this world. All of your acts, all of your deeds are only focused on this world. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, all the good that you do, and this is kind of closing the loop on the discussion we just had the last week. Where we said there is good that you're doing that should amount to creating happiness. It's uh, goodness for the people, making their lives better, easier, pleasure in the world, all good. It should amount to good, but it doesn't. This is because the condition behind it was not meant. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala puts them in this bucket. Everything you did, you only did exclusively for this world. You were only focused on this world. In, in life. So whosoever desires the life of this world and its adornment, and we recited this verse quite a few times, if you're only working for what's in this world and its adornments, its enjoyments, we shall pay them in full for their deeds therein. In this life, we'll pay them in full because that's all they're working for. We'll give it to them in full in this world. And therein, they will not be deprived. They won't lose out in this world. 
they are the ones for whom there shall be nothing in the hereafter but the fire. Whosoever they had brought therein shall come to nothing. So whatever they did in the, in the life, in this world, comes to nothing. That's the habt. And vain was that which they used to do. It looks like it's a lot of good. It looks like it's a lot of producing a lot of happiness. But in the value system of the Holy Quran, this is nothing. It's vain. Because it was only done for this world. And of course, if you go into, especially if you go into the, the narrations, there are so many examples of this. And then they give you a lot more details that we're, we don't have time to cover now. There are, for instance, narrations that talk about the importance of respecting your parents. And what happens if you don't? If you fall, billah, in the category of those who are aq. So there's a clear disrespectful disobedience to the parents. If you fall in that category, we have a lot of narrations that say your deeds are not accepted. You can do all the good you want, but there's a condition. Remember the criteria that we said? You're doing a lot of good, but then the condition is not met. This is one of the conditions. We have narrations that say the person who tastes a drop of alcohol, none of their good deeds will be accepted for the next 40 days. And this is, of course, assuming that they repent and they never repeated and the repentance is accepted. Then after that, they can resume. And of course, they have to catch up. But in the narrations, for the next 40 days, all of their good deeds are nullified. So this is where you start seeing that there are conditions, there are criteria. It's not just a blanket statement. You do good, you get good. You do bad, you get bad. No, no, there's connections. And there are certain existential real effects to certain acts, to certain deeds on your soul that manifest themselves this way. And we recite this in Dua Kumail, right? We say, Allahumma ghfirli al-dhunuba allati tahbis al-dua. Oh God, forgive me those sins which block off my prayers to you. This is one. There's a few categories that Imam Ali alayhi salam mentions in Dua Kumail. This is one of them. There are sins that block off your prayer. Well, if you're doing them, then why do you come ask later and say, how come Allah doesn't answer my prayers? Well, you're performing exactly those sins that block off your prayers. Okay? And then, so this was more on the, I tried to finish on a more positive note. I tend to finish on more negative notes often, so I tried to finish on the more positive note. This time, on the side of expiation, on the side of takfir. And we can go quickly here. As we said, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Now there's a point I didn't, I didn't cover. I think I didn't cover. I was going fast. Now that I see expiation. Very quickly, why is it that we said the problematic area is ihbat and not takfir? Because ihbat, the outcome of ihbat is that you have done good and you're losing it. The outcome of takfir is that you have done bad and the bad is not going to be uh, in effect. So no one is going to complain about not having the effects of the bad. Or in other words, it does not contradict divine justice. 
it falls under divine generosity and divine grace. There is no issue with that. There's nothing illogical in this. So no one really talks too much about takfir being an issue logically, rationally. The issue is ihbat, because you're losing out on something you earned. This is where we, they say this is contradictory to divine justice and the divine promise. Okay? Anyways, it was just a quick remark without spending too much time on this. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says examples of expiation. One of them, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَأَقِنَ الصَّلَاةَ In Surah Hud, أَقِنَ الصَّلَاةَ طَرَفَيِ النَّهَارِ وَزُلَفًا مِّنَ اللَّيْلِ Okay? إِنَّ الْحَسَنَاتِ يُذْهِبْنَ السَّيِّعَاتِ Perform the prayer at the two ends of the day and in the early hours of the night. Truly, good deeds remove those that are evil. So this is the takfir. This is a reminder for those who remember. In Surah Hud, 140. In Surah 13, Surah Ar-Ra'ad, 22. الَّذِينَ صَبَرُوا ابْتِغَاءَ وَجْهِ رَبِّهِمْ وَأَقَامُوا الصَّلَاةَ وَأَنْفَقُوا مِمَّا رَزَقْنَاهُمْ سِرًّا وَعَلَانِيَةً وَيَدْرَؤُونَ بِالْحَسَنَةِ السَّيِّعَةِ Again, those who are patient for the sake of their Lord's pleasure, who maintain the prayer, and who spend out of what we have provided them, secretly and openly, and who repel evil with good. That's the expiation. So there is evil, they are repelling it with the good. There is sinning, they push it away with the good deeds. For such will be the reward of the ultimate abode. And then finally, 47 2, 47 is Surah Muhammad, verse 2. That's the takfir. And those who believe and perform righteous deeds and believe in what has been sent down unto Muhammad, and it is the truth from their Lord. He has expiated them of their evil deeds and set their state aright. So, conclusions from all of this. First point. At, depending on how it's presented and what you focus on, it may look like it's a technical discussion. The, I think, practical outcomes of this is that we understand that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when he says, all the good is counted and all the bad is counted, that is true. But there, there is an effect of certain deeds on other deeds. But it's not just a blanket statement. And the practical ramification of this is that, therefore, no one should ever fall into utter hopelessness that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will never forgive me because I have too much sins. And on the other side, you should never fall into underestimating the effects of the sins because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will just forgive me everything. There is no guarantee on either side, which means you always have to keep yourself aware and keep yourself, you know, uh, endeavoring and striving and working hard to remain in that middle, not falling in hopelessness and not falling on over-reliance. And we're going to come back to that topic, inshallah, again, in the, next, uh, in the next theme that we're going to address. There is a link between this topic and one that we talked about a few lectures ago, which is the relationship between 
this world in terms of actions, deeds, and the reward and punishment, and we said that is a relationship one that is conventional or existential. And even there, we just presented kind of, you know, two big theories. We said in one of the theories, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala randomly assigns out of convention or out of a contract with you. He assigns what reward or punishment goes with what deeds. But we said there is another theory that seems to have more explanatory power which is that your deeds are going to manifest themselves in the afterlife. Or put another way, you are going to manifest yourself in a different way in the afterlife based on the deeds that you have put in. And there's actually another theory that we didn't talk about, which is that your intentions and your acts in this world are creating your afterlife. It's a creationist. There's a khalq happening of your intentions and your belief and your deeds, you are creating what your acts are going to be in the afterlife. So depending on which of these big theories you follow, then you are going to have a different, slightly nuanced version of ihbat and takfir. Because in one sense, what is going in the afterlife is just you. And what you, how you have shaped and molded yourself with belief and with actions. So there is no longer any ihbat or takfir once you're there. Right? What's there is there in its final state. In another one, in another theory, there's something happening. In another one, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is assigning different values to different things. So you get more of this, you get less of that. Right? The first theory because it's out of convention. So there's definitely a link there between this discussion, so I'm simply highlighting that there is a, a link between these two topics. I leave that to you, inshallah, one day if we have a time to really get into more technical and advanced studies in this, we can talk more about these. For now, I just try to flag things for you. And another point here in the concluding remarks is that once again, we have a topic where clearly we can see the limitations of human reason. So you have to rely on scripture. And I always try to make a point to mention this. So that, you know, what's the point of religion? What's the point of scripture and revelation? We always come back to see, well, we would not know any of this. How these laws work between each other and the effects of them in the afterlife. And for a human being who believes in an afterlife, that that should be really important. If I'm going to spend 80 years here and 30 million years there, I'd want to know what's going on in the 30 million years, the 80 years is nothing. It does not even compare. That's where my focus needs to be. So I want the details there and the details there are not accessible to me here with human reason. So this is where you see the importance of revelation in any case. And then the other point is inshallah, in this lecture we were able to touch enough on this topic of how different acts, different deeds have different effects. They have different effects in the real world and they have different effects on me, on my soul. And this is going to manifest itself in the afterlife differently. There's a topic that, maybe we'll end with this one. And I promise I won't go beyond this. There's a topic that 
I'm simply mentioning so that we don't confuse the two. These are two different topics. If you go through the narrations, you will find that there is a large number of acts for which we are told that they have specific effects. You are told, for instance, someone who is really good to their parents, they will have children who are really good to them. Someone who is really good to their parents and their family and their relatives, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will extend their life. If you give charity, if you donate, if you give sadaqah, there are things, tribulations and tests that were supposed to come your way that will not come your way. You push them back with sadaqah. These are, we have a lot of narrations for each one of these. So they're well known. And of course you have, you know, generally speaking, if you help others, if you go out of your way to help others, you don't have time, you don't have money, you don't have, but you see someone needs it more than you, then you go out of your way to help them. That there's a huge, huge literature in our wayat related to this, how much good you get. These narrations often are focusing on, and a lot of us were interested in, their effects in this world. So I am helping someone who is in my family. I'm creating better, stronger family ties with my relatives, with my extended family. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, I will extend your life as a consequence. You are supposed to live 80 years, you're going to live 95 years. This is a completely different topic than the one we talked about. So ihbat and takfir is a topic. And then the effects in this life and the next of all of these acts is a different topic. So I'm just saying these are two different topics. So not to confuse them. It's not because one is happening that the other is happening. It's not because necessarily that you have been good to your relatives that this will amount to takfir, for instance. No. Takfir is its own set of rules and principles and governing laws. And these are different ones. And again, these are ones that we can never discover on our own here in this world. We need revelation. We need scripture to tell us what happens if you are good to your parents or what happens if you are good to family members. Okay? So inshallah, this is clear too. I know this can create some confusion. So I'm mentioning it quickly. And that's all we had. And then we will stop for today and I'll have a question for you. Wa sallallahu ala Sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala alihi al-tayyibin al-tahirin. So the quick question I have for you is that um, we will inshallah most likely have two more sessions before the month of Ramadan. There is a way for us if you wanted to, there was a way for us to complete this entire series by then. So as we said, we will continue to meet in the month of Ramadan without the formal lecture. Okay? That was the initial agreement. If you are interested in this, we could wrap up the series in, two, in the next two lectures with the maybe two big themes left that I wanted to cover, and then we are done. So the afterlife series will be done, and at the same time, it will be the end of our entire series on the Islamic belief system. That's one option.
The other option is that we take a little bit more time. There's actually a few more lectures. We could summarize them in, in a couple and end it so that just for timing's sake, we are done for the month of Ramadan. Or we continue where we left off after the month of Ramadan for a couple more lectures. And then we cover the series and then we begin the next one. Or we simply continue for a couple of weeks within the month of Ramadan. We will most likely not be able to have the lectures as usual in the entire month. So all, let's say four, uh, four times that we will need. But we could take maybe the first two. The first two will probably be happening as usual. We could take those to have two lectures that I would prefer not to, but I'm completely leaving it up to you guys to see what, what's the preference for the majority of you that we try to wrap it up in two lectures and then we have the month of Ramadan and then inshallah after the month of Ramadan we can begin uh, perhaps a new series inshallah or do we continue with it into the month of Ramadan so we wrap it up if we need to or do we simply pause and resume after the month of Ramadan when we are resuming back the uh, officially so what's the preference if there is a preference well so based on the discussion that we had last time and i felt like there was a lot of demand for it the theme is going to be something like i'm still working on it um, and the problem is this is not i haven't found anyone who has talked about this in this way so it's a lot of work to put the curriculum together um, but the theme is basically exploring the topic of life from an Islamic perspective. What does Islam say about this world? So, of course, about this world and then the afterlife. So there is a little bit of overlap with what we have been talking about. But inshallah, there won't be too much repetition. But it's more also to focus on how are we supposed to live because of our outlook to this life. What does Islam say about this life, this world? Is it all negative? Is it all staying away from material? You know, and we talked about it a few times because I felt there was a need, but it came up a few times in our discussion. So I thought, you know what? We can try to do a bit of a series just to really cover. Here is everything our religion says about dunya, al-hayat al-dunya. Let's go through the verses of the Quran and let's go through the, the literature, the narrations. We put them into buckets and categories, and we will look at it from different angles. And that is one potential series that we could have. So unless anyone objects, that was kind of a, for a few of you, I know I kind of promised it. So that was supposed to be the next series. So anyone feel strongly about any of this? Or do you want to think about it more and then you tell me? It's just so that I can... Uh, uh, structure the next couple of lectures accordingly. I condense them. No, unless there's anyone online who's, who's been following and they feel very strongly about any of this, then of course they are more than welcome to, to also tell us.
Yeah. Yeah, of course. Uh, okay. Just, okay. <laughs> so anyone feel strongly about any of this? Yeah. Well, I'm good at recapping, so I'll recap. <laughs> I'll probably take a lecture just to recap. Okay. Excellent. Okay. Yes. No objections? What's the program for Ramadan? No, that would be after the month of Ramadan. There is no program. We would simply meet. We would meet, but there is no lecture. So inshallah, I'm guessing there will be things that come up, but it's just for us to get together and, and chat. So long as there is no program. So I think there's a couple of weeks there will be a program. But I don't know what days will fall when, right? So there will be Layalul Qadr, there will be Wulat Imam al Hassan alayhi salam, there will be Jarah and Istishad Imam Ali alayhi salam. These are all events that there's probably going to be a program here. So during those, no, no, we. No. Uh, oh, it's cancelled tomorrow? Oh, I did not know? Okay, good to know. No? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not really prepared. It's to, I was, I was going to prepare tomorrow. But it was supposed to be a 10-minute, uh, just a little speech, 10 minutes. Yeah. Okay, good. Alhamdulillah. Okay. I honestly don't mind taking whatever you prefer. Okay. I think, Anihab, my preference is going to be to wrap it up, especially if that's what uh, you guys think too. But inshallah, we, we try to wrap it up and uh, we'll try to make it in a logical way. And yes, uh, uh, I, I see your comment and yes, inshallah. So we're going to Thank you very much. And yes, inshallah, the, the idea is going to be to wrap it up in the next uh, couple of weeks. Inshallah, we fully benefit from the month of Ramadan and we see what, uh, what comes up in our little discussions. And, you know, come, come prepared to talk about anything and everything. And, uh, and inshallah, after the month of Ramadan, we'll be ready to jump, jump back in with, uh, from a new angle and a new perspective, inshallah. Good? Okay. For today's lecture, any questions, concerns, comments? Was it too technical or did was I able to make it practical enough, relevant enough? Uh, yeah, good. good. But, uh, uh, the, the idea of replacing uh, your sins with good deeds, 
It's exactly that. That is the topic. So uh, it, replacing your sins with good your your sins with good deeds. So you have sins and then they're removed and you have good deeds to replace them. It's not really that way. That's what we're saying. It's not that. It's that your sins are still there, but the effect of the sin is removed. And then what's left is the effect of the good deeds. Right? So that's the takfir. Yes. Yeah, and we're going to talk about that. That's one of the... I wanted to continue. I'm leaving a couple of remarks from this topic till the next time we meet, inshallah. Because this is a really big and technical topic. So I split it in two. I'm going to try to present it from a completely different perspective, inshallah, the next time we meet. That that's different. That's even more. And this is what I'm going to talk about the next lecture. But it exists, right? Yes, it does exist. But this is beyond. So ihbab and takfir is you're only looking at the effect of the good deed and the effect of the bad deed. If if you believe that the effect of the good deed can be cancelled, and the effect of the bad deed can be cancelled, then that's ihbab and takfir. If beyond that you say there is more happening, then that's beyond ihbab and takfir. And we're going to see that, inshallah, what we're going to talk about is especially for those who are good, especially for the mu'min, we're going to see there's a lot of that that happens. And it goes way beyond just the, you know, the, the bad deeds not having any effect. Yeah, it's a really good question. So the example would be what we gave as the last categories. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying you can do all the good deeds you want, but if you don't believe in God, it doesn't. It's, that's one of the criteria. That's one of the conditions. If you are a munafiq, then you've lost everything. If you are a mushrik, you've lost everything. There is other verses that I don't want to just, I feel like just throwing it, it loses its its true significance. So I didn't talk about them too much. To me, an example of those is, for instance, when the Quran says, لا تبطلوا صدقاتكم. It's a, it's a pretty big deal that you are giving charity and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, you're going to lose out on the reward of the charity because you reminded the person with men, al-men, right? You remind the person with your, you know, your, your uh, arrogance and your, your help of them and this way you, you morally harm them. You injure their, their, their psycho, psychologically, you, you harm them. There's another verse in the Quran that talks about this other one, another category, that would be a condition. It says, if in Surah Al-Hujurat, when it says, for instance, do not raise your voices when calling the Holy Prophet. لا ترفعوا أصواتكم فوق صوت النبي. وَلَا تَجْهَرُوا لَهُ بِالْقَوْلِ كَجَهْرِ بَعْضِكُمْ لِبَعْضٍ أَنْ تَحْبَطَ أَعْمَالِكُمْ 
if you raise your voice to call the Holy Prophet, you have lost all of your good deeds. Which to me, that's why I didn't mention it, that, that to me deserves its own lecture. Okay, so I don't want to just say it. It just gives you the, the rank, the position of the Holy Prophet in the eyes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. What kind of respect he expects and what happens if you disrespect the Holy Prophet with, you know, between us something so insignificant as raising your voice to call him. As we have in the tafasir, they would come and yell out from behind the wall, from the street. They would say, Muhammad! So that the Holy Prophet comes out. So they just yell out his name. And this is what the Holy Quran is referring to. That's, that's the event. If you go to the, to the Asbab al-Nizul and how the, those Arabs were with the Holy Prophet, they would just yell out his name. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals this verse. This is, to me, it goes under the, the category of the conditions. And this is a pretty big condition. As a general, general category, I would say one of the conditions for not falling in ihbat is that you do not disrespect the Holy Prophet. And this is one example. And to me, it would seem in our cultures and societies that this would be a, a minor gesture. And yet the Holy Quran says this minor gesture equals you losing out all of the rewards of all of your good deeds. And you're not even aware that you have lost out on all of your good deeds. Because you raise your voice disrespectfully to call out the Holy Prophet. Yes. Yeah, so the question is for a lot of deeds and a lot of them mentioned in the, in, the, in the narrations for the holy month of Ramadan, for instance, although, you know, because the, the event was canceled, uh, you do know that in two days, it's the 15th of Sha'ban. Please keep in mind that in our narrations, the 15th of Sha'ban is the holiest night of the year after Laylatul Qadr. We in fact have narrations that say that it is one of Layali al-Qadr. Which means that we cannot even understand how sacred this night is on its own. Then when you add the uh, birth of Imam al-Hujjah in it, of course it adds to its sacredness and its honor. But that night on its own is a sacred night that the Holy Prophet would stay up worshipping and praying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the Imams would and so on and so forth. So these are examples of, you know, times when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or rituals where you see what kind of reward there is and it's kind of difficult to understand for us to calculate and fathom. So does anyone just get this or not? The short answer is no. Of course, not everybody just gets this just because you did it. It's no different than someone who prays and someone else who prays, but one of them is a munafiq and one of them is a mu'min. And for this person, they get all the reward in the world and the other person, it's 
they're even going to get a punishment for pretending to pray when they don't believe in the prayer. They're all, both of them, doing the same act externally. So you may recite the, the, the dua, you may recite, do the ziyara, you may stand and perform the prayer. What you get out of it is what you put into it. How much do you understand what you're doing? What does this do to your soul? How much do you believe that this is going to have an effect on your soul? Sometimes people perform acts and they don't believe in them. If you don't believe that there's anything good out of this, then why are you doing it? And I'm not saying don't do it. Inshallah, you do it enough that you will believe in it. But of course, there's a difference between the person who performs the act and they understand what they're doing. And they hope from Allah to get that full reward from it, the full benefit from it. And the other person who does not. And so this is where your level of knowledge, your level of sincerity, your level of understanding of what it is that you're doing, this is what's going to determine what you get out of it. The same thing with siyam, your, whether it's wajib or mustahab, the same thing with prayer, same thing with ziyarat. That's why there's always a possibility to go higher. That's why you have to constantly work on yourself. So that when you're performing the act, the same act, you're now getting, you know, Five-fold or tenfold. And we're going to talk about that, inshallah, when we, when we see each other again next time. Yes. Um, in terms of understanding what you're doing, um, for example, let's say there's a salah, and it tells you, oh, read the surah this many times. Do you need to understand to that degree, like, why, why we're doing this? Or do you need to understand that this is a salah that they told us is important to do, and we're doing it inshallah together? Yes. And pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he reveals, this is a much, much deeper level of spirituality, but that he reveals these secrets to you. Why is it that there's a prayer that he tells you, read Surah Al-Kafirun, and another one he says, read Surah Yasin. And if you spend time reading and understanding, you'll see there is a reason. There are reasons. If you don't understand them, that's fine. You're still doing the act out of submission, out of ritual and worship, believing that it will give you those rewards. And that's fine. That's really good. But do know that there is a higher level. And there is nothing wrong with this. But there is a higher level. And this is the difference with the person who performs it knowing much more. And some of it, yes, you can learn in books. You can learn it in lectures. There is notions that are acquired this way that can help you think more deeply and in a more nuanced way, in a more subtle way, in a more deep way about a lot of this. But that's not the true knowledge. That knowledge only comes from Allah to you. It's something you feel in your heart. That this is where you, the feeling that you get, the, the insight, the spiritual insight, the taste that you get performing the deed, that's not something that someone can lecture about or read in a book. This is what you're feeling. This is something you're experiencing. This is a completely different type of knowledge. And that's the one that, inshallah, you would get that opens up to you because of how much sincerity you put in in your actions. Do the work, go towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and he promises that he will give you some of that according to what you have put in. So keep doing it even if you don't know what. None of us know why is Salat al-Subh and why is Salat al-Zuhur arba'ah. But we do it and we expect full throughout for that. 
and we most likely will never know why it was two here and four here. There are some narrations, by the way, that explain how that came to be and all of that, but none of them will tell you, you know, we could have come up with this on our own. Or why Shahar Ramadan's 30 days? Why not 35 or 27 or 62? So, yes, you do because there's a certain limit, in, but you have to understand, don't focus on those. Focus more on what is it that is supposed to be the meaning behind all of this? What is this supposed to be doing to your soul? When you fast, what is supposed to be happening to your soul? What's supposed to be happening to your soul when you recite the whole Quran? When you read a ziyara of an imam? Focus on those things and you are getting most likely the maximum that you can get out of them and it will keep getting better if you try. But if you just recite, then you're getting the, the thawab for reciting and there is a thawab for reciting. Just like there is a thawab for looking in the Holy Quran. You might not even read the verses or the, the letters, just looking in the Qur'an, our imams say there is a reward for it. But of course, it's not the same reward as a person who understands the verses and the words and their deeper meaning and how it can change their life and, and so on and so forth. Okay? We're good? Yes, go. Yeah. It's not me, I'm good. Some mother falling asleep, that's it. Little dad chocolate, hablo. Okay, so a few very quick ones. Uh, there is a ghusl that you perform with the niyyah that this is the ghusl of the eve of the 15th of Sha'ban. So perform that, it's easy. You know, it takes two minutes, go shower. With the niyyah, just a ghusl, you know, your head and neck, right side, left side, with the niyyah that this is the ghusl of the eve, the night of the 15th of Sha'ban. And this is representative. A lot of the sacred times of the year when there are rituals, you see that it starts with a ghusl. So that it's a symbolic act that's supposed to remind you, I clean my outside and I'm going to clean my inside in the same way. Okay. okay. So there's a ghusl. You perform ziyarat al-Imam al-Hussein alayhi salam, whatever ziyarah, but there are ziyarat that are dedicated for the 15th of Shaban. But perform one of them. Whether you read that one, you find it online, on YouTube, whatever, or you can just read any of the ones you know or play it. Ziyarat al-Imam al-Hussain alayhi salam and Nasaf min Sha'ban, very important. You should definitely do something for Imam al-Hajjah And there's a whole list of, you know, 10, 10 things you can come up with very quickly for, you can uh, give sadaqah on behalf of him. You can pray two rak'at and send it as a gift for him. You can recite one dua al-Nudba or one of the ziyarat of Imam al-Hajjah for instance. Um, it is mentioned explicitly for Dua Kumail that it is very mustahab to recite on the eve of. So it's actually one, perhaps it might have been the time when Kumail ibn Ziyad actually heard Imam Ali salam reciting Dua Kumail. It was the 15th of Sha'bah. Okay, so there is something explicitly mentioned about Dua Kumail to be recited on the, the eve of uh, the 15th. Beyond that, you can recite Quran, you can do istighfar, there is a two rak'ah prayer with a tiny prayer uh, dua that you recite after it. Um, so it's in Mafatih al-Janan, just find the, the Nusuf min Sha'ban, and then you do the opposite of Tasbih al-Zahra. That's the entire act. So two rak'at, it's one tiny surah after each, uh, and then tiny dua, that is you know 30 seconds, and then you do 33 subhanallah, 33 alhamdulillah, 34 Allahu Akbar. 
uh, as opposed to you know the typical 34, 33, 33. Uh, you have to, if you can, as much istighfar as you can, uh, Quran if you can, uh, generally praying, asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala repentance, that those are the big, uh, and then there is a number of ad'iyah that are mentioned. There's maybe uh, eight, seven or eight ad'iyah. None of them are too long. All of them are kind of a couple of paragraphs long that'll take you, you know, three minutes to recite each uh, that are mentioned in, in uh, Mafatih al-Janan and other books. Uh, this is what's mentioned. We also have many narrations that say uh, many of our imams, Imam Sajjad and others, they would stay up all night on the night of the 15, just like it would be uh, for Laylatul Qadr in worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So at least don't, don't deal with it as though it's just a normal night, you know? Recognize that it has something holy and sacred. Imam Sadiq, I think, السلام, says, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has promised that he will not refuse the prayer and the ask of anyone on this night unless they are asking for something forbidden or something haram or a disobedience. So, you know, this is the type of night it is. It's a shame that it just goes through and, you know, you don't, uh, you don't take full advantage of it. And as I said, you know, try to remember your imam. This is, this is the night of his birth. It should definitely not go by without you thinking about at least your, your relationship with the imam, what can you do in that night? And you know, keep in mind, that's it, two weeks and we begin the month of Ramadan. So if you haven't done anything to prepare for the month of Ramadan, this could be the, the trigger and the entry and the warm up. It's two weeks and we're in. So this is the last major event. There is nothing left between now and the end of, of Sha'ban. And then we are in the month of Ramadan. And before you know it, then the month of Ramadan will be over. So take advantage.